G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you. As always. Now, I'm excited to be talking to you about today's topic, which we've called Past, Present and Future, talking about time. But I suppose as a bit of a follow-up to last week's episode, which was on mindfulness and and hyper-arousal, I suppose today's topic is in many ways the other aspect to mindfulness, which is living in the present moment. So do you want to give us a bit of an overview in terms of what are we going to be talking about today? Okay, well, there are some major benefits of living in the present moment. And I suppose one of them is if the present moment is positive, if we focus in the present, using our senses, we can savour what we're experiencing, we can amplify the positivity of the present moment. But if the present moment is difficult, yet we find a way of managing with that and staying in the present moment, that can help as opposed to getting in the trap, which a number of people do with psychological difficulties, is over-focusing on distress about the past or worries about the future. And I remember reading a passage once about how if we all were to focus on our regrets or distress from the past, as well as think of our worries about the future, we're all going to feel overwhelmed. Whereas if we just stay with the present then often we can deal with even challenging situations, putting one foot after the other, even in challenging times. It helps us get through it. I suppose there's that potentially simplified notion that I've heard before, but it's the idea that if you've got too much distress about the future, that's what anxiety is. And if you've got too much distress about the past, that's what depression is. So is that true in the sense of basically, can we simplify them down to these such simple notions? Look, I think there is a time frame aspect to anxiety and depression and you often see this even though a lot of symptoms of anxiety and depression overlap and the genes that tend to lead people to be susceptible to anxiety are the same ones that lead people to be susceptible to depression. But what tends to happen is anxiety is often anticipating worries in the future or worrying and anticipating bad things happening in the future. So this sense of threat Whereas depression is more thinking the bad thing has already happened. So in other words, a sense of loss. So that past focus on loss. So yeah, I think there is that temporal aspect to anxiety and depression. Well, it's something that's come up a little bit on the podcast before is that idea of dealing with things in your own skin as well. And I imagine that's something that's going to come up a little bit today as well. In that sense of the more that we can deal with things in our own skin and manage as directly as possible with whatever uncomfortable feeling or or issue that we're going through, then that's going to help us in the future to build resilience around that too. Exactly. And that's what resilience is, being confident that we can manage with challenging, painful experience in the present. And so, yes, we had previous podcast episodes on avoidance and on dissociation, which essentially are strategies to try and dial down pain in the present by not being so fully aware in the present. But there are real costs to that. But we've also talked about trauma, which often involves a focus on past experience. And we've also talked about worry, which tends to be a focus on future experience, such as when people have generalised anxiety disorder, as we talked about the different kind of worries that people can have, and sometimes worrying excessively, trying to get a sense of control by anticipating the future, but being over-focused on that. 
Well, I think it's interesting as well at the moment because we actually had a, a conversation last week off air sort of thing and I was sort of saying to you, you know, it's, it's hard at the moment because there's so many layers of analysis at which you can kind of look at the future and kind of think, oh my word, we're in a bit of a situation at this point. So I suppose there's almost a couple of different aspects to focusing on the present in that way as well, in the sense of we can focus on the present from an experiential level in terms of what do I see, what do I touch, what is around me, what's in my environment. But also that idea of, I've heard that saying before, you know, only fools predict the future sort of thing. And I think at the moment it's as hard as any time, certainly in my life, to extrapolate events in the here and now going forward as to what things are going to look like. So I suppose there's that extra benefit at the moment in terms of the more that we can, I suppose, bring things to the here and now, it'll really limit that kind of needless worry and the unnecessary worry that we've spoken about on the podcast before. Yes, because like through evolution, humans are geared to look out for threat and danger because when you deal with threat and danger, it helps you survive. But the problem is if you're too future-oriented, then it means that during times of extra stress, we're going to be reading in even more threat or danger or negative things than are likely to happen. And I think as well there can be a slight difference in attitude that comes from having a sort of future focus or a past focus or a present focus because I heard something the other day which certainly resonated with me a little bit but if we look at the current situation we can almost look at it in two different ways in terms of are we stuck at home or are we safe at home and to me that almost comes in there in terms of if we look at things in terms of the present well we're kind of safe at home because there is that you know virus out there and all this sort of stuff but if we're really past and future oriented and think you know maybe things should have been a certain way or I thought I would have been doing something else at this point then that maybe that can get us into a little bit of trouble as well. Yes, I think that's a good way of putting it. And you bring up the word should. Yeah, this should have been different. That should have happened. That does involve a past focus that is often needless. And I think the word should tends to create as much or more distress than any other word in the English language. And I think that the general point that you bring up there too is it's not just being in the present, but how we perceive the present, how we construe it, how we make sense of it. So a whole lot of psychological coping strategies and well-being is about taking a more optimistic yet realistic view of current circumstances and looking at things that are difficult with a coping approach where we anticipate that we can manage with difficulties rather than seeing it as overwhelming or negative. So it does come back to seeing the glass as half full rather than half empty. And it's the way we think about a situation, it's the way we perceive it or view it, that's going to make the difference rather than just supposedly objectively how the situation is. And it's something that we've spoken a little bit on the podcast before is that idea of PERMA as well from positive psychology. And it's interesting that a number of the letters in the acronym of PERMA are, I suppose, present focused in many ways, aren't they? Yes, we'll say positive affect. And often when people think of well-being or positive psychology, they used to associate it with, say, happiness or just, say, positive affect. Now, we're going to tend to experience more positive affect if we are focused in the present. And also engagement, engagement in roles or tasks that we're involved with. Present tense helps with that. Whereas the other ones, like meaning and achievement, they will tend to be more 
future focused. So we'll talk also about how there's a value in sometimes being focused on the future or we wouldn't be looking to achieve any long-term goals. So it's not all about being focused in the present, but we're talking about some of the extra advantages of seeing that we don't spend too much emphasis on past and future. And I think it's interesting because there's kind of two aspects to the present and the way that we can look at it. Because as you mentioned there, there's the focus on the present in terms of, I suppose, the current time frame and looking at what are the things within our control at the moment. But then there's also that experiential aspect of the present in terms of using your senses like your sight, touch, that sort of thing too. So I think that's one thing that will be interesting to talk to you later on in terms of maybe how to bring ourselves back to the present in, in some ways. But Look, one quote that's really resonated with me in different ways is that idea, I think it was Socrates who said, the unexamined life isn't worth living. So I look at things and it's tough because there's clearly got to be a balance to this sort of stuff because if we live in the present all the time, I suppose there's an element of hedonism that comes with that. We're maybe not able to prepare ourselves as well. We're not able to reflect on things as well that have gone in the past. So What is that balance then in terms of having some reflection and not just focusing on the present at all times? Yes, well, psychologically, I think there's some real value in acknowledging the past and considering the past. One thing is that's where we get our sense of identity and history. And that's one of the wonderful things about family relationships and even thinking of ancestors. It gives us that sense of identity history so that adds a degree of gravity to our life in a way and it also helps our understanding of the present just like if we look at history of a country it helps us understand about customs and culture and and also the direction that we're going in if we see the path that we've come to this point and how that's evolved that can help us make sense of our lives and and I think psychologically it also helps to have some reflection on the past for that deeper self-understanding. Well, we've heard that idea of those who don't understand history are doomed to repeat it, which I find a very interesting notion, particularly at the moment in many ways, politically. But I suppose it is politically that we've seen that idea come up in terms of is it Godwin's law that comes up on the internet where you get into an argument with someone and there's that algorithm for how long it's going to be before someone brings up Hitler and the Nazis to try and, I suppose, further their point. But how does this idea relate in a psychological context? Because it's one thing to look at, for example, the sociology of an entire group, but is it any different on an individual level? Well, I think it helps very much at an individual level to look at personal history, even things like where we were born, where we were raised, uh, the cultural groups that we were raised with, the geography that we lived in, certainly family culture, different values that our parents had, what emphasis that they might have had on achievement, for example, the value placed on relationships. So the notion of values, interests family culture, those kind of things make a real difference. And so that's where, as a psychologist, if we're trying to understand someone's experience in the present, we will often ask people about their past and do a genogram in the first couple of sessions. Now, a genogram involves asking people about their parents and siblings and even about their grandparents and about the personality of their parents and grandparents because that can influence people as well. So family history, personality, family culture, those things make a difference, which I think is why Freud was so interested in archaeology. 
actually looking at Freud's rooms and pictures of what he used to have in his consulting room, he had a whole lot of archaeological artefacts. Or Jung also, who was a very influential psychiatrist, the one who coined the term synchronicity, also introversion and extroversion, or who talked about complexes. Jung was very interested in cultural traditions and even mythology of different cultures, so he had a strong focus on the past as well to help understand the present. So I think if we try and understand why we have certain kind of habits or behaviours or tendencies like perfectionism or any of the difficulties that we've talked about in previous episodes, they're always going to relate to past history in some way. Well, it's interesting because I think it comes back to that idea of what you spoke about earlier as well is that it's the perspective that we have on the past as well because I believe in some cultures, I think in Africa, there's that notion that the past and the future don't actually exist because the past is everyone's own subjective version of it. So it's not as if you necessarily there's a categorical past or a codified version of the past. And at the same time, the future, there's so many things that we're just not going to be able to, for lack of a better term, put into the modelling <laughs> to uh, use a, a current phrase that we see a little bit. But there's going to be so many variables that come up that we're just not going to be able to foresee in any way. So I find this idea interesting because clearly there is something that we can get out of it. But at the same time, maybe just looking at it in terms of recollecting the past and, and remembering whether or not things happened or, or just remembering them in a certain way maybe doesn't necessarily give us the benefit. Yes, and I think one of the things is recognising that there's a lot of subjectivity and a degree of choice in how we think about the past, the future, our lives. But if we recognise that, that even when we think of the past, we're doing so in the present, then we've got choices in the present of what we pay attention to. Like we can pay attention to foibles or mistakes or things that have gone wrong. We can also pay attention to our strengths and resourcefulness and opportunities that we've seen maybe arising. So I think that when we recognise how we construct the past and anticipate the future, it reminds us of that subjectivity and a degree of choice in how we view things. And I suppose if we're looking at that idea of, you know, what benefit is there in the past and reflecting, there's an element of survival that comes into this because, for example, if you go back to kind of caveman times, if you came across a, a lion, for example, you'd want to remember that that lion was pretty dangerous, for example, if you had a near-death experience. So I suppose there's an evolutionary element to things that you can see why these things are, I suppose, in evolution. You can see why they're still existing. But it seems to me a little bit from what you're saying there that the problem can come in when there's a bit too much of an overemphasis on looking at the past and, and how it could influence the future in that way. Yes, and as you say, there's survival value there in thinking of the past, isn't there? If we had a near-death experience, then it's not that surprising we'll have bad dreams that come back about that or flashbacks about that. It's partly evolution's way of reminding us, watch out for that absolute threat. But yes, we can be over-focused on regrets or losses and negative aspects of our experience, whereas I think one of the helpful things of thinking of the past is when we think of character strengths. That's where this podcast started off, the theme of character strengths. Now, how do we determine our character strengths? We reflect on our past and see how that reflects our bent towards creativity or persistence or leadership. The different strengths that we have, that affirms us when we can see the best in us in retrospect. 
It's something that we've spoken a little bit about on the podcast before in the Weaning Off Worry episode, that idea of unproductive and productive worry. And I wonder in this situation, is it a similar circumstance that we can almost look at things in terms of unproductive and productive reflection? Like I'm just wondering, how do we identify a way in which it's a, maybe a good time to be thinking about the past and maybe identify a way that we're overemphasizing some of the negativity in the past? Oh, I like that idea. Like when you talk about productive reflection, I suppose there's that notion of positive reminiscence and memories. There's the understanding that comes from it and maybe also learning from past mistakes and successes that can help us make the most of the future. Yes, I like that idea of that productive focus on the past, whereas I suppose the unproductive is the over-focus on what's gone wrong, which is different from the notion of grieving. Grieving is acknowledging pain of what we've lost, but it's also a process of acknowledging how meaningful that's been to us, and in the process of grief we can become more whole. So that's also productive in a certain way. But if we just get caught up in, say, regret or self-recrimination or ruminating over bad things that have happened, that's going to be quite unproductive. And that's a key contributor to depression. Well, let's look at this idea now of the future then, because we've spoken a little bit about how there's aspects of the past that can be good to reflect on, but we don't necessarily want to overemphasise the regrets or the painful memories in that sort of sense. How does this work with the future? I can imagine, as we've spoken a little bit about before, as I just mentioned, we've got elements of productive and unproductive worry, but what are some of the ways in which we can think about the future which benefits us? Well, when I think of this, I think of an expression by Martin Seligman about being pulled to the future rather than being driven by the past. And so again, I think this relates to themes of meaning and achievement and values. It's how we want to be. It's how we want our life to unfold. It's a sense of direction, purpose, meaning. And I like that expression about being pulled to the future because it implies choice. And rather than being driven by the past, rather than viewing ourselves as being determined or the die as having been cast... We can recognise the past, understand ourselves a little bit like understanding history or archaeology or all the rest of it, but we've still got choice. And I think that comes across strongly in Seligman's expression. Another one that I've heard which I really like is by Michael Steger and he talks about the idea of your meaning and purpose in life being an anchor into the future in the sense of it's almost like this flag that we plant in the future that helps us at least orient ourselves in a certain direction. Yes, I really like Michael Steger's work on meaning and I really like that word anchor. And he does a lot of work on helping people develop their sense of meaning and purpose. And that gets across the notion that the more work that we do in that kind of area or the deeper consideration we have about what kind of future that we would wish to have, that will be more of an anchor. So that will be something more solid if we've really thought that through. I did an exercise the other day, which I think is really good. And I think it fits in here really well, because it was for me 
brilliant just in terms of I suppose contextualizing this idea and making it really tangible and the task was to write yourself a letter in 12 months congratulating yourself for the success that you've just had and it was a really interesting thing because I suppose there's that idea of you know where will you be in three years where will you be in five years there's these sort of notions that come up every so often but to actually sit down and go through the exercise and for example actually write down all the things that you're trying to achieve in the next year I certainly felt great benefit out of that and I think particularly at the moment when things are a little bit cloudy in terms of what the future is going to look like in many ways, at least drawing it back to our values in that sort of sense in terms of what are some of the main things that we just want to put down as the non-negotiables in terms of what are the things that we just really want to strive for, for example, in the next year or the next however long. But that was an exercise that I felt was really good and I think it deals a little bit with what you're speaking about there. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And I like the way that you're focusing on values there. So being aware of our values, our values in the present, that's what can help shape our plans for the future. So even then, even when we're thinking about the future, it's through a keen awareness of the best in ourselves now. And so what can we do if we are finding ourselves in a situation where we are a bit too over-focused on the future or a little bit too over-focused on the past? How can we bring ourselves back to the present? Well, I think one of the main things is in terms of positive affect. So notice the kind of activities that give us a sense of joy, the kind of things that give us a sense of meaning and satisfaction or even achievement. I think part of it is noticing the things that help us get in a state of flow. So flow is that state when we're engaged in a certain kind of activity that time passes easily. Hours might pass with barely being aware of the passage of time because we're so immersed in what we're doing. So appreciating the experiences that mean the most to us that way. But also using our senses as we engage in the present. Noticing what we see, noticing what we hear, noticing what we smell, uh, noticing our emotions at the time. And so basically it's being attentive to the now and that will help amplify our experience and that orientation to being in the present moment, to experiencing the now, will generally tend to enhance our well-being. Well, I think it's one of the things that we like about dogs and other animals and pets and I think it was Eckhart Tolle I remember saying one time that the idea of Zen is that moment when you look into a dog's eyes and it's that second before your brain kind of narrative kicks back in again. And I think that's relevant, but also to that idea of flow state as well, in the sense that the more that we can get into that flow state, the more that we can find activities that lead us to that flow state, well, it allows the passage of time to pass quicker as well. And I think that flow state, just say if we're involved in work-related activities that give us a great sense of satisfaction. That's where we can hit a sweet spot, if you like, where we're still working for future goals and longer-term consequences, but still enjoying the present. That's a lot of the value of people choosing occupations or tasks or roles that are satisfying to them because people can be engaged in the present, but still there's that consideration of the future. Uh, And there's often a trade-off between the future and the present. So there's that notion that if people are working very hard towards longer-term goals, then there might be less of that day-to-day satisfaction. Whereas if people just focused on the day-to-day satisfaction in any kind of hedonistic sense then there might be less thought to the future. Because I'm reminded of some other research that Philip Zimbardo referred to where they asked people, what would it be like 
if there was an extra day a week, if you had an eighth day in a week. And most people said, oh, that'd be terrific. I'd get more done. In a sense, they talked about doing more work. They weren't so much talking about, oh, that's great. I've got more time for socialisation or more time for leisure or even more time for sleep. People's thoughts tend to go straight to, I could achieve more. And I think that's where it's important to have some strategies and techniques to bring us back to the present in that more experiential aspect because we've spoken a little bit about that idea of thinking about things in more present terms so as not to overwhelm ourselves but there can be great benefit from bringing us back to the present moment as well in terms of what do we experience and that sort of thing too, can't there? Yes, and so a lot of it comes back to what we pay attention to. And one of the basic ideas is paying attention to what we're doing at the time and maybe paying attention to one thing that we're doing at the time. That's an aspect that can help us be present focused. But there's the notion of being focused on the present helps not just positive experience but also helps us manage with painful experience because with positive experience we'd call it savouring. Just say if you're tasting a wonderful meal or having a wonderful meal, then it's the colour of the food, it's the texture, it's the smell, it's also the ambience of the setting. It can also be the company that you're with. But tending to focus on one thing, the taste, then the texture, maybe even the temperature, that's a way of enhancing our current experience. And to help us focus on that, one of the mindfulness exercises is taking a raisin putting it in our mouth, noticing the texture, noticing the temperature, noticing the taste. And by focusing on each aspect in turn, that helps us recognise how we can amplify the experience by staying in the present moment and really paying attention to our experience. Well, First of all, I think we call them sultanas in Australia, Dan, not, <laughs> not raisins. But I like that idea anyway. At least I think it leads us to savour the moment a lot more. And I've spoken a little bit on the podcast before about, well, I think this year I've got a lot more out of just on walks, just making a little bit more of an effort to notice things that you can savour along the way. But I wonder if this idea of focusing on things in that way almost works a little bit as well with the negative side of things because I remember reading Cadell Evans' book and one of the things that made Cadell Evans incredible was his pain tolerance. And so Cadell Evans was actually kicked in the head by a horse when he was about 10 years old and so he suffered horrible migraines throughout his childhood and into early adulthood but he said that it helped him learn to deal with pain. And one of the things that he talks about, being in the mountains on the Tour de France, you know, your legs are burning, you've just got lactic acid coming out your ears. But he says, focus on the pain. You don't actually try and block out the pain at all. If you focus on the pain and just basically settle into it, well, you're not fighting with yourself and you're not necessarily trying to curb it at the same time and there's not that conflict that's going on within yourself if you, I suppose, accept it a lot more. So can this also be the case with, for example, pain and even painful memories and that sort of thing that we've been talking about a little bit today, can it actually be the case where focusing on it can actually diffuse some of its intensity rather than making it more as you almost think it intuitively might? Yes, this is a key aspect of coping skills, which is often a revelation to people who are suffering from anxiety or distress, including pain. And we can relate it to the idea of distress tolerance. Often when people have significant physical pain, for example, but it could also be panic reactions, 
Let's take pain. People often think if they were to focus on the pain in their knee, for example, it would get worse. Now, naturally enough, when people first pay attention to physical pain, yes, it might be more in their awareness and their intense discomfort might be almost overwhelming for that initial period. But if people focus on it, even beyond a matter of seconds, but certainly over 10, 20 seconds, if people focus on discomfort over a period of time, it tends to get lesser. It certainly tends to get less threatening. So many avoidance strategies that people have, like if they really try and numb themselves or block something out of their mind or have a panicky symptom like their heart beats faster or they're breathing quicker or feeling dizzy and the person thinks, oh, I shouldn't be reacting this way, I shouldn't be having this. It's a form of non-acceptance of the uncomfortable reaction of, in a sense, looking for it not to be there. Whereas if people will accept it, For example, with pain, if people will describe it as a certain kind of shape or size or colour, just even sitting with an image of the pain, a tangible image of the pain, often leads people to feel a little more accepting of it. Because people might find that they aren't so overwhelmed by it as they might have feared. The same thing with panic attacks. If people notice their heart beating very fast, And before, that'd be so uncomfortable, the person might think I'm having a heart attack and feel so distressed and think I shouldn't be having this. Well, one of the strategies for people with panic attacks where it involves heart palpitations might be encouraging the person to run up and down stairs and get their heart rate up. And at first, the person thinks, oh, I don't want to experience that. But if the person does it, notice that their heart does beat fast. And yes, it does feel like that. It does feel like it feels during a panic attack. But then in a sense, nothing too terrible is happening and it might be uncomfortable, but then it can become less threatening. And so that's where one of the key things about distress tolerance strategies, as we call it, is that kind of acceptance. And as people have the experience of going through that again and again and again, for example, noticing some of the somatic discomfort that happens when you're feeling stressed, like it might be a tightness in the stomach or muscle tension in your shoulders or a tightness in your jaw. If we reduce down our distress to focusing on those somatic experiences in the present moment, then rather than being as overwhelmed by the anxiety, for example, the person can recognise, in a sense, it's just discomfort. That's also some of the reason why we sometimes ask people to rate their discomfort on a 0 to 10 scale. And the person might say, oh, it's 8 out of 10 or 9 out of 10. But by staying with it, often people find after a little while, it might have settled to say a 7 or a 6 out of 10. So the person's confidence of managing with the discomfort will increase. But there's certainly some other strategies that can help people manage with the discomfort in the present moment. That includes having a mantra. We talked about that last week as well. People might say to themselves, I'll be okay, or let it pass, or just watch my tension level come down, or just notice what happens to the pain sensations, and then often noticing that they shift a little bit. They don't just stay stuck in the present moment. Actually, there tends to be some level of easing over a period of time, or at least some of the anxiety goes out of it. So yes, just like you mentioned Cadell Evans' experiences, which I hadn't heard of before just like that, but that's got a very close overlap to how we help people deal with physical discomfort, pain and somatic discomfort. 
and help take some of the fear and some of the heat out of it. Well, it's interesting as you're speaking there because it leads me to think actually back to primary school because I think our first reaction and our first intuition in many ways is to try and distract ourselves because remember there was that almost notion in primary school of someone had like banged their knee or stubbed their toe or something and you think, oh, if you just pinch yourself in the arm, you can't feel two bits of pain at once, so you'll only feel the one that's in the arm because it's sooner. But I find it interesting that that line of thinking didn't didn't continue very far beyond primary school. But Actually, I'll just say, I remember now, I'd forgotten this, that what my dad used to say if I knocked myself on the elbow or whatever, he'd say, knock yourself twice again. So that's probably <laughs> the idea of you know looking to get past the fear, so to speak, that it's not actually so terrible as it might have seemed at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dad, it seems to me from what you've said today that a lot of the distress that we do experience psychologically can come from overemphasising the past. And whether that's looking back at things that have happened in the past and feeling bad about them or extrapolating them out into the future and worrying about those permutations. But at the same time, from what you've said today and what we spoke a little bit about last week, it seems that this idea of mindfulness is a little bit about, first of all, bringing your senses and bringing your focus back to the present at an experiential level. And then from there, that almost just contextualizes things a little bit more in the here and now, which means that we're less likely to get overwhelmed because we're thinking about all the things that could happen or all the things that can happen in that way. Yes, I think that's a good way of summing it up. So in a way, what we've done today is talk about different time frames and looking at past, present and future as different ways of talking about topics that we've covered earlier. It might be topics around about worry or trauma or anxiety. And it's recognising that there is a time frame component with these things. But in a way, what we're looking to get across is when we have a focus on the present and use a coping approach rather than thinking things should be different from what they are now or imagining of how else they should be, if we accept that it is what it is, if we take a coping approach in the present, meaning I might not like this, I feel really uncomfortable, I even might feel overwhelmed. But if you focus just on your actual experience rather than adding the worries and negative thoughts to it, then it tends to become much more manageable. So a whole lot of it is around that notion of acceptance, coping, muddling through and getting by. Things aren't so terrible that they need to be different from what they are. And that's the experience that people often have if they stay with things in the present moment. And so as we mentioned before, there's a range of things from last week's podcast which are going to be relevant to what we've spoken about today. So for those who haven't heard it, feel free to go back and have a listen to last week's episode because particularly around some of the arousal management stuff and bringing us back into the present moment in a more experiential sense. There's a lot about that in last week's podcast. And also on the episode page for this week as well, we'll put up again the relaxation tracks that we've recorded recently. So that might be something that you like to include in your own little recipe for methods of self-soothing in that way. So please feel free to check it out at chrismackey.com.au slash podcast. Thanks for chatting with me today, Dad. I'll talk to you again next week. Good then, Rowan. Look forward to next week.